I believe all of us would agree that our nation is in trouble. As uh, Brother Tony Evans just told us, the answers are not going to be found in Washington, D.C. We all know the answer to the problems. His name is Jesus Christ. We need a spiritual revival in our nation. And it begins in each one of our hearts. It's not going to begin in a body of believers. It's going to begin in individual men and women that are sold out to Jesus Christ and prevail with prayer to our Heavenly Father that He show Himself strong. Romans 13 is very clear that you and I have a responsibility in regards to a government. In your bulletin, I've enclosed a voter's guide. You know what our responsibility is? It's to pray and to vote. Pray first and then vote. But we need to educate ourselves. And on that bulletin and on that bulletin insert, the voter's guide, you can see basically the platforms of both parties. I mentioned last week it's not about who we're voting for. It's about what we're voting for. I also want you to understand this. We've talked about this for years. I've been here through four different, three, I'm sorry, three different presidential elections. And every time we've talked about the fact that evangelicals don't go out and vote. So I want you to understand very clearly that bad leaders, bad leaders are elected by people that don't vote. You follow that logic? So you and I have a responsibility, whatever it may be. You pray about it. You ask God to give you wisdom about voting. There's a couple other things I want to talk about today. These guys uh, mentioned it here a few moments ago uh, before we get into God's Word this morning. This Tuesday represents two very wonderful anniversary dates in Amy's in my life, the same day. Fifteen years ago today, we came to this church as the pastor, and we couldn't have been more excited about that. We knew that God had his hand on us. He affirmed the move before we got here, and he subsequently affirmed every step along the way. But even a more significant anniversary in my life, in Amy's life, was our 30 years of anniversary of marriage. And uh, the Song of Solomon Chapter 3, verse 4 says this, I have found the one my heart loves. On November 1st, 1986, I accomplished the greatest earthly mission I've ever had, is to talk my wife into marrying me. We were joined together as husband and wife, and it will always be one of the greatest days of my life. 30 years. We can't even believe that it's been 30 years. It's gone so fast in many ways. In other ways, it's been a, a great long journey. The other day, Amy mentioned to me, do you realize that we've been the pastor of that church half of our married life? And I hadn't really put those two numbers together, but she was right. To say I love you means so much more than three little words. Amy, I want you to know this morning in front of my family that God has shown me such a beautiful picture of his love as we have shared these 30 years together. We have seen God bless our lives over and over. And Amy, you are the top of that blessing list. I want to sign up for another 30 years right after the service. I love you, honey. The other anniversary, 15 years as pastor of Beaverton Baptist Church. I'll tell you this with all sincerity and all honesty, that uh, there's many better pastors out there in this world and in this nation. I know some great pastors. But I know very few pastors' wives that love the Lord, that serve the Lord, that love and serve God's people like your pastor's wife. 
Thank you, Amy, for your partnership in all these years of ministry here. And we count it all joy to serve the Lord alongside you. For 15 years, we've laughed with you. We've cried with you. We've rejoiced with you. We've grieved with you. We've celebrated with you. Amy and I talk about it all the time, but God has given us an incredible blessing of living life with you. We've seen miracle after miracle. We've seen a mighty movement of the Holy Spirit. We've seen destroyed lives saved by grace. We've seen marriages traumatized by sin restored. We've seen children running hard in the wrong direction captured by prayer and by love. We've seen Jesus break the chains of men and women paralyzed in bondage. We've seen God's people travel into the uttermost parts of the world, 33 nations altogether that this church has sent teams or people to to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've seen God raise up seven men from this church to become ordained pastors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God has given Beaverdam Baptist Church a statewide presence, listen very carefully, as a church sold out to the purposes of God. I've tried my utmost to preach God's holy word. I've many times after the service asked Amy, was I too hard or was I too stern or did it sound like I was being mean? She's always affirming and always been a great constructive helper in my ministry. We were living in difficult days. We were living in an ever-increasing hostile environment, just like the early church. I want to share with you today that I believe we're living in a time of no more excuses, no more half-stepping, no more standing on the sidelines, no more business as usual. I believe we're living in a time of a new normal for Beaverdam Baptist Church. We've seen great things, but it's time now to see even greater things by God's hand, by being used of God in a great way. God put this church here less than 20 years ago to change the world. That is our mission, and listen very carefully. That's what we're going to do. That is what we're going to do here in this church. I gave you an insert today, another insert there. It's your sermon notes. But in those sermon notes, I've put down four different thoughts today about where I believe you and I need to go. And these are serious. I gave them to you in print so you can take them home, think about them. You're going to see them in the next few bulletins, the next few weeks. I pulled the theme out from a couple of years ago of living in victory. And that's what we need to do, live in victory. We're going to preach about it today as well. But I gave you four things here too, and your pastor is going to be the one that leads the charge. I've always believed in leadership from the front. I don't want you to go anywhere that I'm not going to go first, okay? Thought number one is we need to wake up to reality. We really do. We need to realize where we're living, how God has blessed this nation, but you know where the church has been? The church has been asleep. The church has been quiet. People have asked me over the years, hey, do you think that, God's going to, uh, that, that Satan's going to bring persecution? God's allowed persecution to come to church? And uh, one wise pastor said, why would, God, why would Satan awaken the church? The church is sleeping, unfortunately. We're living in biblical times. There's a battle going on for the hearts and souls of our children, for our friends, for our co-workers. And God has called you and I out to, to wake up to that reality. I believe with all my heart. He wants you and I to be aware of what's going on around us. Realize that we're in a war, a spiritual war. It's not a war between Democrats and Republicans. It's a spiritual war. The problems that we have in America today are not political. They're spiritual. 
They're spiritual. You know why? Because we haven't taken the time to share the truth. You know what the biggest enemy of truth is? It's error. People don't like to hear the truth because why? Because all of a sudden they realize, if that's the truth, I'm wrong. If that's the truth, I'm in error. So they don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear about Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus Christ said, I'm the way, the what? The truth and the life. People don't want to hear that. They don't care if you talk about Muslim or Muhammad. They don't care if you talk about Buddha. They don't care about talking about Joseph Smith. That's fine. Why? Because those men are dead. I said men. Those aren't gods. Those are men. They're dead. But Jesus Christ lives and Jesus Christ is truth. The second thing we need to be aware of, we need to seek God, not our own preferences. The question for us to understand that, am I truly seeking God and not my own preferences? What is there in my life that is standing in the way of me receiving the fullness of God's grace? Is there something in my life right now that's holding me back from getting it all? I want it all. I want to be an empty vessel, God. God, I want you to use me. I want to be filled up, be used in a powerful way. The next thing we need to think about is number three there. We need to believe God can do all things. You know what question that also begs? How big is my God? Is my God big enough to handle the problems i got right now? Is God big enough to heal the things in my life that need healing, to restore the things in my life that need to be restored? Is God big enough right now to fix the things in my life that are broken? We know He is. Nothing is impossible with God. What would you do for the glory of God if you knew you would not fail? What would you do for the glory of God if you knew you would not fail? Finally, question number four. We need to build the house of God. I got two thoughts on that line. First and foremost, what am I doing to encourage the bride of Christ? Am I doing anything at all to encourage another Christian? Am I encouraging people? Am I an encouraging kind of person? Do I realize that God put me in here? God gave me a gift that two-thirds of the world does not have. Am I using that gift for His glory? I want to be the most encouraging person that I know. I want to edify people. I want to build people up. I want to be used of Him. I go to Walmart. I go to Kmart or the the drugstore or the grocery store. I want to be an encouragement to every person I meet, especially that little cashier there that's working overtime. I was waiting for my wife the other day at a little fast food restaurant, having a soda, just sitting there reading and waiting to meet up with her downtown. And I saw a lady in that restaurant that had to be probably 80, 85 years old, barely able to walk. You know what? She was a little hostess that cleaned the dining room. I thought, God bless her. But my mind also, when I shared it with Amy, I said, you know what? I hate the circumstances that cause an 80 or 85-year-old woman still to have to work in that kind of environment and to do that, just to survive. You know, there's people all around us every day that we don't know their circumstances, but we have an opportunity to encourage them, to thank them, to, to edify them, to build them up, to be that little ray of sunshine. For all I know, that little lady that was working in that restaurant hadn't had anybody pour any sunshine into her life for decades. Who knows? I don't know her story. I thanked her for doing that, and I thought, how precious this is that you're taking time to take this Uh, she took a little glass from my table. When was the last time you told somebody about Jesus Christ? How do we build the church? We share the greatest news ever heard. So there's four thoughts there for us all to think about. Now, time to get into God's Word. I've prayed for God to give me kind of an insight here into where we need to go as a church here as we finish out 2016 and get ready for 2017. 
And I believe that God wants us to learn some of the basics again. You know, in the Holy Bible, we see that Jesus Christ repeated himself 500 times. 500 times. You say, well, he talked to a lot of people. No, that was 500 times just to his apostles. Why? Because he wanted to make sure they got it. I want to talk today about living above our circumstances. We all have circumstances in our life, and many times they sink us. Many times they bring us to our knees because it's a crisis in our life. Amy and I have had crises. You've had crises in your life before. And many times out of those crises, I've seen God move. I've learned something there. I've shared with you before, a lot of times we learn things on the battlefield or in the middle of storms we can't learn anywhere else. God shows us something that we never saw before. God wants us to show us these things. And many times he allows crises to come into our life that teach us, to show us what's going on. Don't miss this thought. Crisis is not only a crisis. A crisis is a time for you to grow closer to God. A crisis is a time for you to realize that God has given me an opportunity right now to learn something, to see Him in a greater way, to see Him with greater understanding. What is a crisis? A crisis is something that comes in our life when we realize i got no options left. There's no options to fix this. Everything that I thought would work won't work. I'm up a creek without a paddle. You've heard these expressions before. Over-the-counter medicine will no longer do it. I'm between a rock and a hard place. I'm in a pickle. I'm in a predicament right now, and none of my options work. Maybe you're here this morning, and you're in a predicament. Maybe you're here today, and your life is a predicament. You're thinking, <laughs> my whole life has been just one big predicament. Praise God that you've got a Heavenly Father that knows where you're at. That he, has, he wants to do something incredible. I want to take a few moments this morning and theologize a crisis. Theologize your crisis to be specific. I want you this morning just for a moment to put on your HD glasses, okay? Your high-definition glasses. I want to take a closer look at God this morning and see what God is up to in a crisis. What God wants to do in your life when you're in the midst of a crisis. God's right there. The crisis in your life wasn't a surprise to Him. He knew it was coming. Maybe He allowed you to run in the wrong direction and all of a sudden smack into that brick wall. you got a major crisis right now. God did that. Crises come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. Some of them are financial crises. I've, I've been in my office numerous times praying with men that just lost their job. They're devastated because they spent 25 years at a bank and all of a sudden the bank got bought out and they, they're without a job because their job got liquidated, eliminated in the midst of the merge between these two banks. Maybe they owned a company. Over and over I've seen men broken because they've lost a job. But you know, all we've got to do is talk about God for a minute. You know what happens? All of a sudden they realize, okay, I know where I'm going. God's got it under control. Maybe it's a relational crisis. Many people have had relational crises. Maybe a marriage, maybe a situation with a child. But in the midst of that crisis, God wants to show up. Maybe a medical, a number of our people have medical crises in their life. I think most of us would be agreeable to the fact that we're in a national crisis right now. In our nation here, what way are we going? Most of us would probably agree the wrong direction. Circumstantial crises. It could be just some circumstance that comes upon your life, and all of a sudden I'm in a crisis. There's one common denominator about a crisis. You can't fix it. It's a crisis. I can't fix it. I need a power bigger than me. 
I need somebody beyond myself here to get involved to fix this crisis. Suppose for just a second that you have a crisis today. God has you in a crisis. Listen very carefully. Hold on to your seat because God wants to show you something great, something beyond what you've ever seen before. He wants to deliver you out of that crisis, and when he does, you realize only God could have done this. Only God could have done this. God did this today. I want you to ponder this thought too. I mean, this is profound. Don't miss this thought this morning. If I'm not dying, I don't truly understand resurrection power. I don't. One thing to know that God's a healer when I'm not sick. Yeah, he's a healer. But when I'm sick, I really want to know that God's the healer. It's one thing to know that God is the way. But I'm already home, so it doesn't really matter. But when I'm lost, and when I'm desperate for direction in my life, to know that God's the way, it's a whole other story. It's one thing to know that God is a provider. When my whole bank account is overflowing, i got more money than I could ever spend. But when I'm looking for my last meal or my next meal, it's a whole other thing to understand that God's a provider. It's in the midst of these crises that God shows up. It's in the midst of our hard times that we seek God. Jesus Christ told Paul when he was begging for that throne of the flesh, my grace is sufficient. It's in your weakness that you're going to see my power. And then Paul said, I'd rather glory in my infirmities than the power of Christ may rest upon him. He got it. He understood that in the midst of our worst times, and Paul experienced bad times. In Philippi, singing in that jail after he'd been beaten and chained to those locks there, singing away. Why? Because he realized in the midst of his infirmities, he's going to sense Christ and see him. We grow in our crises. We grow in the essence of all the things that go wrong in our life. Why? Because God wants us to look to Him. God wants us to hold on to Him. Of all the stories that we can read about in the Bible, you know what the story is that really, really, probably is the premier crisis story? (coughs) There's a number of them. But I think probably the premier crisis story in the Bible is the Red Sea. The Israelites came to the Red Sea there. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me if you will. To Exodus 14, (coughs) beginning with the 10th verse. As you find your way to Exodus 10, verse 14, stand with me this morning, if you will. Exodus 14, verse 10. And when Pharaoh drew near, the children of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians marched after them. So they were very afraid, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us to bring us up out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. And the Lord will fight for you. You He shall hold your peace. And the Lord said to Moses, Why did you cry to me? Tell the children of Israel to go forward. But lift up your rod and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide. And the children of Israel shall go on dry land through the midst of the sea. Then I indeed will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so so they shall follow you. So I will gain honor over Pharaoh and over all his army, his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians saw 
Then the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gained honor for myself over the Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Let's pray. Father, may you bless the reading of your holy word. Father, speak to our hearts this morning, Father, that we might see very clearly, Lord, that you have provided a way for us to live above the circumstances. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are a God that delivers. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I think many of you understand the story of Israel. Israel moved into Egypt when Joseph became the second in command of Pharaoh's nation. His brothers came and they reconciled between the brothers that had betrayed him at an earlier age in his life. So 75, 75 Israelites came to Egypt at that time with Joseph. The time we found here, which is 430 years later, we see over 2 million Israelites living in Egypt. The Pharaoh there realized, he, he kind of, seriously, we got more Israelites than Egyptians. If they decided to revolt, we'd be in trouble here. You know what's sad about the Israelites living in Egypt? They'd gotten comfortable. Things were going pretty well. They had good jobs and they were being provided for. Safe, they had safety underneath the Egyptian army and the Egyptian ruler. So they were going pretty good. But the big problem with the Israelites was they were comfortable without God. They were living in Egypt and they were very, very comfortable. But God was not present there. So God said, hey, I want you to leave. I need you to leave. But he knew they weren't going to leave. So he began making things uncomfortable. He brought in a new king who realized, man, we've got to get the Israelites under control. So we're going to put them under bondage. We're going to start doing things here. Verse 8, it says there in, in chapter 14 that they got a new king. Verse 9, that he afflicted all kinds of burdens upon him. In verse 10, it says things kept getting worse and worse. This is the story here where it got so worse that Pharaoh realized that because of the birth of all these Israelites, we need to start killing the firstborn of the Israelites. And so then he told, he gathered the midwives together and said, hey, you're going to start killing every firstborn Israelite, every male-born Israelite. The midwives wouldn't do it. So he said, all right, I'll tell you what we're going to do. I'm going to send my people. We're going to steal those little baby boys out of there and we're going to put them in the, throw them in the water and drown them. That's where Moses came from. Remember his story? His mother knew that, hid him for four months, and then put him in a little basket and sent him down the creek. The sons of Israel were so miserable, they began crying out. They, listen, don't miss this thought. They didn't begin crying out until things got miserable, until the affliction came. You know, it's kind of like us. We pray nice prayers. We thank God for all things we have. But until the crisis comes, until the breakdown comes, we don't really begin crying out with fervency. We don't begin wailing and asking God to, to show us a way. You know, we've talked about praying for our nation. Am I really that concerned that it would drive me to my knees about my nation? It should. Am I concerned about my church that it would drive me to my knees and begin praying, God, God, use me to build our church, to tell people about Jesus Christ. Use me to build the body of Christ, whether they come to this church or not. I want to build the body of Christ. God, use me. God often allows our life to get worse before it gets better. You know, I know that contradicts a lot of theology out there, my best life now and some of these things. But God is in the habit of raising followers of him that are sold out for him, that are soldiers of the cross. God is not concerned so much about our comfort as he is about our walk. He wants us to walk with him in a great way. 
God is being good when he precipitates a crisis. He really is. I want you to ponder this thought for a second. Getting fired can be as good as getting a raise. What? Getting fired can be as good as getting a raise. I think most of you know my story. I lost that corporation. Thousands and thousands of dollars. lost it. But out of that, you know what God did? He got my attention. And then he gave me a whole new direction for my life. And I thank God for that. You know, I can't tell you how many men I've talked to. That, and this is part of my line. I said, you know, does God know where you're at today? Yeah, absolutely. You think God still has a plan for you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, just hold on to the plan then. Hold on to God. And let's see where he takes you. And I can't tell you how many times men and women have come back to me and said, man, Pastor, I'm so glad you shared that that day or glad I heard that that day because you know what? Look what God's done now. Look where God took me now. Look what God's doing. We don't need to look at the crisis as merely being negative. Exodus 2.24 says this, So God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You know, bless those that bless you and curse you that curse you. In our specific needs, we don't need a general God. When we have a specific crisis, we have a very specific God. He's right there. He's engaged every step of the journey. He knows what he's doing. He has a plan for you and I. Listen very carefully. Part of that plan since before you were formed in your mother's womb was, hey, this person's going to have this little crisis here, but wait and see what I do in this midst. I praise God today because in my crises I've had in my life, most of them I've come out and seen God when I really got serious about following God. I missed a few of them in an early life, but God didn't give up. God kept kind of sending or allowing things to come into my life to get my attention, and I thank God for that. <laughs> You know the story of Moses, how he got called to go. Moses found himself on a mountaintop. He'd been in the desert for 40 years. He'd been in Pharaoh's house for 40 years. Now he's in the desert for 40 years. And he found himself on top of Mount Horeb, a mountain there. And the burning bush is there. You know what was amazing about that burning bush, though? Here it was. It said it was a burning bush, but it wasn't burning. It wasn't distinguishing, extinguishing itself. It kept on burning. There is nothing burning up. You know what that is? It's a contradiction. When you have a bush or anything that's burning, it typically disintegrates because it burns up and turns to ashes. You guys have seen it before, campfires or different things you see burning. It was a contradiction. This bush was burning but not, not, not burning up. God told Moses, take your shoes off because you're standing on holy ground. You know what happened? Moses took his shoes off and he walked towards that contradiction. He walked towards that contradiction. Listen very carefully. God was in the middle of that contradiction, okay? He was 80 years old. That contradiction was the bush was not burning, but God was there. He walked towards that contradiction, and you know what God told him? I'm going to use you like you've never been used before. I want you to return to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. God had a plan. God had a mission. In the middle of a contradiction, God showed up and showed, them, showed Moses great and mighty things. Listen very carefully. You're facing things right now that seem to be a contradiction. God, I'm, I'm living my life, right? How come this has happened to me? God, how come these bad things are happening to such a good person? You see this contradiction in your life. You know what? God's in the middle of that contradiction. God wants you to walk towards that contradiction. God doesn't want you to stop. God doesn't want you to complain. He wants you to walk towards that contradiction. 
Moses obeyed God. He kind of argued around a little bit and kind of whined a little bit, but finally he said, okay, I'll go, God. God went and told Pharaoh to let his people go. Well, Pharaoh said no. So Moses brought ten, and I'm sorry, brought nine of God's plagues. And after every plague, Pharaoh said no. Even the ninth plague. Pharaoh said no one time too many. The last plague was I'm going to kill every firstborn male of the, of the Egyptians. Pharaoh still said no. Well, God delivered on his promise the plague. Kills all the firstborn Egyptians. So Pharaoh finally realized, okay, just get them out of here. Get those Israelites out of here. Get, get rid of them. I don't need them here. I don't want them here. Get them out of here. But that's not the whole story. If you go back to Exodus 13, you'll see that, <coughs> sorry, Exodus 12, 12, you'll see that not only did Pharaoh tell them to go, but the Egyptians gave the Israelites gold and silver and all their precious belongings. Really? Get rid of them. I'm so excited about getting rid of them. Give them all the money so they can pay for their trip. Just get them out of here. Get them out of here. Exodus 13, we see God telling Moses which way to go. If you know the geography, Egypt is south of the Promised Land. They had a very direct route to go. They could have gone straight up from Egypt and followed along the Mediterranean Ocean there and gone up to the Promised Land. God didn't send them that way. God sent the Israelites the long way around. We had a little purpose that he told Moses, listen, if you go along the Mediterranean Ocean up here, you're going to run into the Philistines. And the Philistines are your enemy. Oh, we don't want to go that way. So God said, go this way. Go over here. I mean, if you look on a map sometime, they had the maps of the, the trip they took. Man, it, it goes all over the board. Literally, it's probably three or four times further than they, if they just gone up the Mediterranean Ocean to the, to the uh, thing. But God told them to go the long way. Why? Because the Philistines are there. <coughs> Here's a thought for you and I. I'm praying for this deliverance in my life. I'm praying for God to show up and, and rescue me. I'm praying for God to whisper. And all of a sudden you realize God's taking the long way around. God, why is it taking you so long? God, why is it taking you so far? Listen very carefully. Two reasons. God knows that the quickest route is not always the best route. Do you hear that? The quickest route for you to see deliverance from your crisis is not always the best route. The other thought is here that God had something special he wanted to show the Israelites. You know what it was. It's what we're talking about here. The parting of the Red Sea. On your journey, as you're going through this crisis in your life, you know, we begin to ask ourselves questions. God, what is it you want me to learn as we go a long way? God, what do you want me to change? God, what do you want me to see on this new journey here? This journey isn't pleasant. It's, it's filled with all kinds of fear. The Philistines are out there. The Egyptians are behind us here. All kinds of things in our life that could cause us damage. So God, I'm very concerned here. The quickest way is not always the best way. God has a plan. Chapter 14, verse 4. It said that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. What do you mean? God's, his heart was already hardened. God, you're really going to harden it more? <coughs> I want you to think about how God hardens hearts. And we're not talking here about a struggling heart. We're talking about a heart that is a fusing heart. We're talking about a heart that says, I don't want to listen to God. I'm not paying attention to God. We're talking about a heart that has no conception of God, could care less about God. God was hardening Pharaoh's heart. Why? Because God was going to use Pharaoh for a mighty purpose. His purposes for the nation of Israel. The quickest way to a hardened heart, listen very carefully, 
The quickest way for you and I to harden heart is to become a complainer and a grumbler. It's the quickest way. Why? Because for whatever reason, we get comfortable kind of complaining and grumbling as opposed to praising God and thanking Him for the things we have. Every single one of us has things in our life that could cause us to grumble probably. You know, i got things not going well or my boss or whatever it might be in your life. But you know what? I'm just going to praise God that i got a job. You know, my, bo- my boss might be a crumbum. But listen, I've got a job. I got a paycheck. I got this thing. So we have we can always find things to be thankful for. My toe hurts. Well, thank God you have a toe. Remember the Israelites? Israelites were in the middle of the wilderness. And uh, they were getting provided direction, you know, cloud by day and fire by night. They were getting fed every day, manna and, and water from rocks. Well, all we ever have is manna. All we ever have is manna. We we, we need some meat. We need some meat. Complain, complain, complain. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Well, God says, okay, you want to grumble so much, I'll give you what you want. In fact, I'll give you so much, it'll overwhelm you. So what does he do? I'm going to start sending quail. Quail everywhere. I mean, they're everywhere. Falling from the skies. Quails having heart attacks and, and strokes up in the high air and falling down and flopping on the ground. Quails everywhere. Okay, we got meat. Man, look at, we got too much meat. Way too much meat. So they start grumbling about too much meat, too much quail. You ever had a <coughs> child that was crying? And you asked the child to be quiet. And you said, hey, if you don't be quiet, I'm going to give you something really to cry about. <laughs> you know what God did? I'm going to give you something to complain about. You want to complain about manna? I'm going to give you something to complain about. You're going to have somebody. Think about the smell of quail rotting and all this stuff. I'm going to give you quail, so much quail, you can't stand it. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And so we realize, as the story continues on, Israelites are realizing, man, God just delivered us from slavery. And we're going to the promised land so excited until they realize there's little hardships along the way. And then they find out that God had hardened Pharaoh's heart. What do you mean you've hardened his heart? And then they find out that Pharaoh's coming after, Pharaoh's coming after him. Chapter 14, verse 6, it says... Pharaoh got all the chariots ready, 400 chariots with all the men that goes along with it. I'm sorry, 600 chariots. They got the chariots ready. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and they chased the Israelites. As Pharaoh, it says in verse 10, drew near the Israelites, they became greatly afraid. Watch this. They cried out. They were crying out because things were miserable in Egypt. Now they're crying out again because things aren't going well. The enemy is coming down on us. They were very concerned. Over and over. In fact, listen to what they said. This is verse 11 we read a minute ago. Then they said to Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, have you taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you so dealt with us and bring us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, Let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? Remember? They were comfortable in Egypt without God. God wanted to have an experience with Egypt. With the Israelites, God wanted them to get out of there, get them out where all they had was Him, and they could realize who He is. They realized that God's a great and mighty God. God became real important to them when they saw this crisis bearing down on them. You know, in the midst of the crisis, we don't really care about anything else except God. That's what God wants. God's a jealous God. God uh, wants us to have a soul focus. A soul focus. God wants us to have a singular focus. And so many times in a crisis, what happens? We have that single thought, God, please, rescue me. Rescue my child. Rescue my wife. Rescue this situation, God. We're looking for God to show up and show off. 
In the midst of all that complaining, Moses told them to stand still. In other words, he said, be quiet. Be quiet. You know what he's saying? He says, wait and trust God. He told them, just got to trust God. We can get so concerned about the crisis, so concerned upon the potential thing happening to us, so concerned about what might go wrong in the whole crisis. You know what? We miss God. In the midst of the crisis, you know what he wants us to do? Just cry out. Cry out to God. Cry out to God. God, I know you know this is going on. God, just give me strength, God. Give me patience. Give me perseverance. God, give me the ability to stand strong in the middle of this crisis. God, help me to live above this circumstance. Help me to live with you. It has everything to do with where our focus is. We can focus this way in the circumstances, or we can focus this way in God. God said, hey, just trust me. Listen very carefully. Praise God when he puts crisis in our life that it draws us to finally get our affections set in the right direction. In America, we're so busy, we're so blessed, we constantly fight the battle of having our affections set this way, not that way. God wants you and I to walk with him, not walk in the world with them. We have to be here, but we're not of this world. We're just sojourners. We're just passing through, just like the Israelites. Moses said, be, be quiet. Stop blaming God. Instead, start looking to God. They're so busy whining and complaining and grumbling, they miss God. But Moses brings them back, says, be still, be quiet. Hush, close your mouth. Just look to God. Then God, in verse 16, told Moses, hey, I want you to lift up your rod over the water. And I want you to tell the Israelites to move forward. You know, that's kind of tough to do. Listen, how do I move forward? There's a big red sea in front of us. Moses did it, though. You know the rest of the story. God told Moses to lift up his rod. And then he told Moses to tell the nation of Israel to walk forward. This is huge. Here's the whole theme for the message today. If you want to live... Sorry, I won't move around. If you want to live above the circumstances, you have to exercise all the faith you have. If you want to live today above all the circumstances, crises, good things, everything else, you need to live and exercise all the faith you have. Well, I don't have a whole lot of faith. What did God say in the Bible? If you've got a faith of the size of a mustard seed, you know how big a mustard seed is? It's about the, big, the, the, about the size of a, a head of a ballpoint pen or a head on a pin, a little prick pin they push into Upholstery. Moses held, held out his rod and the Red Sea parted. Not only did the Red Sea part, but they walked over in dry land. There's no way that should be dry land. If you can part the sea, which nobody can, but God part the sea, there's no way that land should be dry, but it was dry. You don't carry two million Israelites across that and then 600 chariots come chasing to that on muck and mud that's three feet deep because it's been under the ocean for the last... 500 years. Pharaoh chased the Israelites through that sea. As you know, that God told Moses to lay out his rod again, and God enclosed the water upon him. I want you to know this morning it's not enough to hear about. It's not enough to talk about. It's not enough to study about. Not enough to share stories about. We need to see the crisis in our life as an opportunity for us to draw closer to God. You can talk about it all day until you experience one. You're not going to really understand who God is. Look, God showed up. I had this going on in my life. God showed up. I imagine many of you in this room today can realize that, you know, there's been dozens of times in my life when God showed up. And I was concerned, but God showed up. I thought this was going to happen, but God showed up. Next time you face a crisis, instead of grumbling or complaining, 
Realize God has you in that situation for a very specific purpose. God's created that opportunity for you. Why? Because he loves you. He wants you to have an experience with God like you've never had before. God wants to take down the Egyptians in your life merely by trusting him and exercising all the faith that you have. August 27th, 1776, the British landed 32,000 troops on American soil just a little north of New York. They were going to take on George Washington's army, which at that time had about 11,000. So outnumbered three to one, basically. Plus, this is the greatest army in the world, and George Washington's army is basically a bunch of farmers and former sailors. But he landed those 32,000 troops with 400 ships in the harbor there. Largest invasion the world has ever seen to that point. George Washington was very concerned. They had a skirmish. The very first skirmish, which happened August 27th, 3,000 Americans died and only 392 British died in that first skirmish. It was the biggest confrontation of American and British troops throughout the whole war. The Americans found themselves trapped between the British Army, all 32,000 of them, and the East River. George Washington knew that uh, it was hopeless. It was really hopeless. This is the beginning. This is the first battle of the war. George Washington is thinking, really? It's all over in the first battle of the war here? There's going to be an annihilation here. I stand no chance. You know what George Washington did? He sent a messenger to the Continental Congress, but he also called his officers together and said, we need to pray. We need to pray for God's divine attention. You know what they did? They cried out. Things were looking very bad. They cried out to God Almighty. And this is huge. I love this about our history, how God has shown up over and over. But he prayed. In the midst of those prayer times and that fasting, he called them to fast as well. In the midst of that prayer time, he realized, I need to evacuate our troops. We need to get them across the East River. And so they determined the night they're going to do it before the British attacked. They knew it was just coming in a day or two, so they knew they had to do it imminent. It was, we need to do it now. So he loaded up his troops. They only had a few barges to get across the river. So they began right at dusk when it was getting dark and the British wouldn't see him evacuating. So they evacuated the troops all night long, and the river wasn't in the best shape either. It reminds me of the Jordan River. It was a tempest-type river. There was all kinds of problems getting those boats across because of the storm and because of the waves and things. But he got about half the army across the river, and dawn came. The sun was coming up. George Washington realized that uh, this is bad because we've lost half our army. Now we're only about 5,000 troops here. And we, had, we stood no chance at 11,000. Now we stand no chance definitely at 5,000. So he began praying. Had his officers praying too. Give us speed here to get across. Had no idea how God was going to do it. You know what God did? God came down and part of the Red Seas. He brought fog on top of the East River. Fog over the British guys. He was able to get the rest of the troops over. George Washington being a great general... Last man to get in that boat to go across that morning. He wasn't going to let one man stay there behind him. He was going to make sure every single man got across that river. Samuel, Day, Samuel Adams wrote this. He said, there's instances just like this of the East River of the astonishing providence in our favor. The hand and heart of God led us across and out of that crisis. He read that to the Continental Congress when they got the report back that George Washington had saved, God had saved 
that army to fight again another day. We know the outcome of that battle. God showed up that day. God showed up in yours and my life. God wants to show up today in your life as well.